want to ask that you would open up your Bibles to the book of Romans. We are continuing our way through the book of Romans. We're making a bit of progress at this point. We've uh, turned somewhat of a corner. We are beginning chapter 6 today. We're looking at Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. But as is our custom, we're going to start reading from the passage that we thought about last week. And so we're going to be, begin reading today at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. And we'll read on through. And we'll talk about this a little bit more, but Paul's changing, changing uh, what he's talking about now. He had indicted the whole world, giving us a reason why we all need the gospel. Um, then he told us kind of the heart and meat of what the gospel is in Christ, what happened at the cross, how, how we are uh, forgiven. And then he begins to turn uh, the corner here and um, talk to uh, believers about life and what it means uh, to be a believer. So let's begin. We're going to start at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, 
we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's pray. Lord, we have read your word, and we would ask, O oh Lord, that as we think about your word and we think about things connected to these things, that you would search our hearts, our minds, that you would remind us of life and how this, your word, is a light to our feet how it directs our path, how it guides us, how it encourages us. Lord, give us ears to hear your voice. Help us with these wandering minds of ours. Lord, may we hear you and know you and grow. We'd ask it in Christ's name and for his glory's sake. Amen. Last week, when we looked at the end of Romans 5, uh, we talked about graduations. You remember that? We talked about the celebration of graduations and so forth. Graduating uh, from one thing and beginning something new. And connected to that is embracing a new identity that that transition brings along with it. If you stop and think about it, we experience these major shifts in our identities several times throughout life. Becoming an adult, becoming a parent, marriage, a career change, a promotion, even retirement itself. Each one of these brings a new identity. Consider parenthood, becoming a parent uh, requires individuals to embrace a new identity. When someone becomes a mother or father, they take on the role of a caregiver and a nurturer. They're responsible for the well-being and upbringing of their child. They have to sometimes stop what they were doing, who they were before, and, and change things, right? And this new identity of theirs as a parent brings on uh, new roles and new responsibilities. And you embrace those with a sense of self and purpose. Similarly, in our passage, we learn that believers are called to embrace and live out their new identity in Christ. 
If you look at verse 11, you'll notice that it says what? It says, you must consider yourselves dead. There's that thing you're graduating from. But what else does it say? You need to consider yourselves alive to God. Believers are called to embrace their new identity in Christ, their new life in Christ. So as we meditate on this text, we're gonna uh, think about several questions. We're gonna try to answer several questions. What does this new identity look like? Uh, What does it mean to be alive to God? Alive to God. And, and how can believers actively embrace their new identity and live victoriously? Well, Paul opens with questions of his own, uh, aiming to help us grasp the essence of our identification in Christ as he focuses on the proclamation of our new identity. That's the first heading, the proclamation of our new identity. In the preceding chapters of Romans, Paul discusses the concept of justification by faith and the imputation of righteousness through Christ. He says that salvation is by grace and it is not by works of the law. And he also addresses the ongoing struggle with sin that believers experience. And the transition from chapter five to six marks a shift in focus from the implications of justification to the transformation of the believer's life. You might remember the text we just read in uh, Romans chapter five. You remember when Paul wrote, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Paul wanted his readers to understand that no matter how great their sin may be, God's grace was greater and more than sufficient to overcome it. And Paul knows that some may misinterpret the concept of abundant grace as a license to continue to sin. So he poses the rhetorical question in verse one. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Notice his answer. By no means, by no means. Other translations say, may it never be. Of course not. God forbid. Paul rejects any suggestion that grace promotes sin. In fact, he poses a question in verse two to emphasize the opposite perspective. He writes, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You're dead. Of course, Paul is speaking metaphorically. A metaphor is a way of of describing something by comparing it to something else. It's like creating a word picture. For example, if I say her her smile was like a ray of sunshine, I'm not saying that her smile is the sun. I'm saying that her smile is warm and it's bright. And, And Paul is speaking metaphorically in our text. He asks, How can we who died to sin still live in it? 
Paul wants believers to know that they're no longer, that they're no longer slaves to sin. Believers have experienced a radical change in their spiritual state. The death he refers to is a spiritual death. It symbolizes the breaking of sin's power and the separation from its reign. It signifies a decisive and irreversible transformation that takes place in the life of a believer. Paul says that the believer has died to sin. And he continues the metaphor in verse three, writing, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? What is baptism? It's a sacrament. It's an initiatory rite. It's a sign of a person's association with the triune God. It's identification with the death and resurrection of Jesus. It symbolizes a cleansing from sin, escaping divine judgment, obedience to Christ, and it's a sign of our entrance into the visible church. Baptism cannot coexist with an ongoing sin because it symbolizes our transition from death to new life in Christ. It signifies the cleansing from sin through Christ's blood. It demands our commitment to the covenant. Continuing to sin contradicts the transformative purpose of baptism. It undermines our covenant allegiance to God. Baptism calls us to embrace a life of holiness and obedience, renouncing sin and humbly walking with God. Paul says that you were baptized into Christ. To be baptized into Christ's death means that through our baptism, we are united to Christ in his death. It symbolizes our identification with him and his crucifixion. It signifies the spiritual reality of our participation in his death and its effects. When Paul speaks of believers being baptized into Christ's death, He's highlighting the profound spiritual union that occurs through faith in Christ. Believers undergo a spiritual union with Christ when they come to saving faith. This union is a profound and mystical reality that occurs through the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The spiritual union with Christ is a mystery, of course, that goes beyond our comprehension. But it's not merely a symbolic or intellectual union. No, it's a genuine and mystical union that has profound implications for the believer's identity. And it has profound implications for our relationship with God and for our lives. Believers not only identify with Christ's death, 
and its implications for their old self, but we also participate in the transformative union with Christ himself. We're united with Christ in a profound way. And you can see that as Paul continues in verse four. Paul writes, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's statement emphasizes the profound transformation that occurs in the life of a believer through their union with Christ. By being buried with Christ in baptism, believers symbolically die to their old self and experience newness of life. They are no longer slaves of sin, but are raised to walk in newness of life enabled by the power of Christ's resurrection. When Paul talks about believers experiencing a newness of life, he means the change that happens in our lives because of our union with Christ. This phrase signifies the power of our new identity. That's our second heading, the power of our new identity. I don't know if you've seen the regular news articles or not, but DNA evidence has had a significant impact on the criminal justice system. Um, It helps provide uh, accurate identification, and that's resulted in solving a bunch of cold cases and exonerating the innocent I recently read an article about a man named Maurice Hastings. The headline read, Man wrongly imprisoned for decades is declared innocent after DNA evidence points to a different suspect. This man spent 38 years behind bars for a murder that he didn't commit. And at a press conference, Hastings said, I prayed for many years that this day would come And I'm not standing up here a bitter man. I just want to enjoy my life now while I have it. Well, I'm glad that he's not bitter. And you can imagine how happy he must have been. He was imprisoned and now he was set free. Well, the Apostle Paul wants believers to know that they have been set free as well. In verse 5, Paul writes, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. You see, in addition to sharing Christ's death, we also partake in his resurrection. Paul affirms our burial with him. We share in his death. Our old self is, is dead and buried. And this burial has a purpose. Resurrection. 
What God did for Christ in raising him from the dead, he also does for believers at their conversion. He sets us free from the power of sin, and he gives us new resurrection life. Consider verses 6 and 7. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Our old unconverted selves were crucified. The person a believer used to be in Adam was crucified. Paul says our old selves were crucified in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. He says that our old selves were crucified so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Believers are no longer ruled by sin. They're no longer powerless. We should stop here for a moment because I realize that we're all in different places. Some of you might be struggling and you might be thinking, mm-hmm. how come I don't feel the power? How come, how come I find myself struggling with sin? Others of you might just be unfamiliar with what the Bible says about the nature of humanity. Do you know that the Bible speaks of humanity as having um, four different natures? Uh, Not all at once, let me explain. It tells about human nature, number one, before the fall. Two, after the fall. Three, when a person is born again. And fourth, what their nature is like in eternity. So you get it, those are the four different aspects. And scripture speaks to each one of these, what our constitution is like, what our will is like, what our nature is like. Adam and Eve were created good and they were untainted by sin. They could choose good or evil. But when Adam fell, he plunged all of humanity into a state of sin. The Bible says that after the fall, humanity is born dead in trespasses and sin. It says that we're born in bondage to sin and that we are unable to save ourselves. It says that in this second state, humanity is unable to to discern spiritual things without God's intervention. So we often refer to this state as what? We say um, it's total depravity. They're not as, people aren't as bad as they could be, but every part of our nature, that second nature, is fallen and corrupt. So we have that first one, Adam and Eve, free, but when they fell, there's that second state. All of us born in bondage to sin. What Paul is talking about in this passage is that third state, He's talking about the nature of a person who is born again. He's talking about the nature of believers. When the Holy Spirit revives a person, when he makes them alive, he gives them spiritual life. 
And this new life brings change to the core of our being so that we believe the gospel and so that we desire to turn from sin and embrace Christ. The Spirit unites us to Christ, to his death and to his resurrection. When you're born again, you undergo a profound and transformative spiritual change. This transformation involves a renewal of the heart and of the mind and of the will. The Spirit works to regenerate the believer's heart, to bring about a change in their affections, what they, what they love and what they desire and what they prioritize in life. Your mind is renewed, allowing you to now grasp spiritual truths. You can see the world through a transformed perspective. Your will is changed as well. You're given a genuine desire and ability to choose righteousness and obey God's commands. You see, believers are given a new nature, and yet their old nature remains. When you're born again, you have two natures. We have both an old nature which is fallen and sinful and was inherited by Adam and a new nature which is received through our union with Christ. The two natures are in constant conflict and we're called to live in accordance with our new nature, empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul's gonna talk about this, about the war of these two natures when we get into chapter seven. And what you'll learn as you study the Bible is that old nature gets weaker and smaller and quieter as that new nature grows in strength. But you might find yourself in a place where there is a real war. But for now, Paul continues to elaborate on our union with Christ. In verse eight, he writes, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Our connection to Christ goes beyond his death and it includes his resurrection life. When we identify with him, something remarkable happens. We're released from the clutches of sin and we embrace a whole new life. We move from that second state to that third state and it's all possible because we're filled with the same resurrection power that lives in Christ. This truth is incredibly reassuring to us as believers. It means that we have a secure and victorious position in Christ. Sin no longer has dominion over us. We've been raised to walk in the pursuit of our new identity. That's our third heading, the pursuit of our new identity. 
the pursuit of our new identity. As our text continues, Paul gives the first of several imperatives. An imperative is a grammatical mood uh, used to express commands or to express instructions. It's a form of verb that directs or urges someone to do something. And listen, I'm highlighting this because imperatives convey not only practical guidance, but also moral exhortations and spiritual principles. And understanding the imperatives in biblical texts helps us to grasp the intended directives. It helps us to know what to do. How do I apply this? What does this all mean? That's what imperatives are getting at. In verse 11, Paul gives the first one. Paul writes, So you all also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul is urging believers to adopt a specific mindset or perspective concerning our relationship with sin and our new life in Christ. He gives us an imperative that calls us to actively and consciously embrace our new identity in Christ. We're called to consider ourselves dead, our old selves dead, dead to sin. This means recognizing that through our union with Christ, we have been freed from the power and dominion of sin. We're no longer under its control. We're no longer obligated to obey its desires. And we're also called to consider ourselves alive to Christ This means acknowledging that we've been spiritually resurrected with Christ and that we're now connected with him in a living relationship. Listen, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's not in the tomb. He's very much alive. Christ is alive. And what does scripture say? That all All power and authority have been given to him. He's been seated in heaven. That doesn't mean that he's taken a seat. It means that he's been given a seat. He's been given the kingdom. He has all power and authority. And you are united to him. Really. Truly. As believers, we have newness of life and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit to live in obedience to God and to pursue a life of righteousness. Paul talks about how we are to consider ourselves. Do you see that in verse 11? Do you see that word? Consider. We're called to see ourselves as dead to sin and alive to God. This understanding of our identity helps our self-perception and our worldview. We're no longer defined by our past sin or controlled by sinful tendencies. Our identity is now in Christ and we're to live in accordance with that new identity. 
We're empowered to resist temptation and to overcome sinful patterns in our lives. We have the ability through the power of the Spirit to make choices that align with our new nature in Christ. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. With every temptation, there's a way of escape. Ephesians 4. Look, if you struggle with a life-dominating sin or a besetting sin, you need to search for the pattern. And if, you're having, if you can't find success, reach out for help. Seek counseling from a brother. You'll see in Ephesians 4 that you need to take those patterns, recognize those patterns where you're falling. You need to put them off, as Paul says. And you need to put on a new pattern. Scripture provides us with a way to find success aided, of course, by the grace and power of the Spirit and Christ. Paul's instruction here emphasizes our need to actively and intentionally cultivate a mindset that aligns with our new identity. It involves consciously considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, deliberately choosing to live in obedience to God's will and pursuing righteousness. And you must understand that our ability to live as dead to sin and alive to God comes through our union with Christ and the work of the Spirit within us. We rely on Christ's strength and guidance to live out this new identity. In verse 12, Paul writes, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. We're called to actively resist the power and influence of sin in our lives. We need to make intentional choices regarding how we use our bodies and how we conduct ourselves what we allow to influence, influence us, what we're watching, what we're hearing, who we're hanging around. We need to be intentional. We need to think. Were we not called out of the world to follow Christ? We're called to wholeheartedly present ourselves to God, acknowledging that we've been brought from death to life by our union with Christ We're to offer ourselves to be used by God for his purposes and the pursuit of righteousness. We're called to respond to these imperatives. However, it's crucial to understand that our response isn't an attempt to earn or maintain our right standing before God through our own efforts or adherence to the law. Sweep that out of your mind. If you're in Christ, you've already been made righteous. 
Verse 14 says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law, but under grace. Believers are called to respond to these imperatives while relying on God's grace for the power to obey. We understand that our righteousness and our right standing before God comes solely through faith in Christ as a free gift of God's grace. This right standing isn't based on our own works or ability to keep the law, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what this table represents. The finished work, the body and blood. The means of our righteousness. While we're no longer under the condemnation of the law, we're still called to live in obedience to God's commands and to pursue holiness. This obedience isn't born out of a desire to earn salvation or maintain a right standing, but is a response of gratitude and love. It's a response of affection for what Christ has done for us. We talked about that earlier. Remember the third nature. The spirit changing everything about us. Our hearts, our minds, our wills, giving us an affection for him. A desire to follow him. Christ never said it would be easy. He said, take up your cross daily and follow me We must rely on the empowering work of the Spirit and God's grace to walk in obedience, knowing that it is God who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. We've seen that believers are called to embrace their new identity in Christ and live victoriously by the power of his resurrection. A new identity means that we are dead to sin and alive to God. It means that sin no longer has dominion over us because we're under the reign of God's grace. The practical implications of this truth is significant. We're called to actively consider ourselves dead and alive to God. We must consciously align our thoughts and actions with our new identity in Christ. We're empowered by the spirit to resist the power of sin and to pursue righteousness. We're called to present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness, offering our bodies and our lives for his purposes. But remember that our ability to live out this new identity and to walk in obedience comes solely through God's grace. We're not under the law, but under grace. Our right standing before God isn't based on our own efforts or works, but on the finished work of Christ on the cross. We rely on his grace and the empowering work of the Spirit to live in obedience and to pursue holiness. Embrace your new identity in Christ. 
Embrace it with gratitude. Embrace it out of love. Walk in the freedom and victory that comes from being united in Christ. And may your life reflect the transforming work of Christ as you walk in newness of life for his glory and the expansion of his kingdom. Embrace your new identity and Christ and live as those who have been set free by grace. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we would begin by uh, confessing to you our sin. Oh Lord, you know the ways in which we fail. Um, oftentimes, Lord, we find ourselves so broken, um, it's hard um, to know even what to confess, but certainly, Lord, we see things and you know our struggles and yet we have heard wondrous things in your word. We have heard of our union with you, and we have heard of the ways in which you empower us, and we remember John 14, where you said you would send the Spirit to empower us. Lord, we need your help. We pray that you would give us power, Lord, we pray that you would continue to transform our hearts, our minds, and our wills. Lord, we pray that you would implant in us a serious desire, a serious repulsion for sin. Lord, would you help us that it would become unattractive? Would you help us in this fight we find ourselves in with these two natures of ours? Lord, give our new nature victorious a victorious fight. Lord, we want to grow in holiness. We want to follow you. And yet, Lord, we need you. What have we to offer? Lord, take us, fill us, change us, make us yours. We'd ask it in Christ's name and for his glory's sake. Amen.